It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are perpetually against pox. <laughs> The anti-poxers. The anti-poxers. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. I am Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital and also chair of our state immunization coalition, Iowa Immunizes. And I always say this, but Iowa Immunizes is a fantastic coalition. They always say, as Iowa goes, so goes the country. So That's what they say. So go support Iowa Immunizes so that we can all go somewhere good. We put the herd in herd immunity. There we go. Because of the cows. Yes, you got it. Good job. That was my, that was my, my uh, motto. I don't hate it. I made it. that up. I think it's great. We've got shirts. I know. Well, today we're talking, actually, it's just me. I'm talking to Jonathan Howard about his new book, We Want Them Infected. Mm-hmm which is fascinating and he was such a fun person to talk to and nathan's gonna look forward to that interview too because he wasn't there for it i was super disappointed to not be able to talk to him but i wasn't able to arrange my schedule that way i'm so sorry oh that's okay i think i think i did an okay job without you yeah Um, i'm sure you you did it was missing the pop culture references but we Mm -hmm. talked about vaccines so all right so let's go on to our around the web nathan do you have anything interesting Sure. I want to talk a little bit about HPV again. I worry a little bit that I might have done a similar around the web at some point in the last year or more because I'm looking but at a couple of studies. But HPV is always worth talking yes. about. And I, I kind of want to come back to it just because I feel like I'm seeing in social media a big retargeting of HPV. It's like, okay, HPV was the boogeyman before COVID and then COVID's the boogeyman. And now, you know, people are getting bored of COVID. So we got to make HPV the boogeyman again. And so you're starting to see some of the same contrarians who were going on about COVID during COVID and COVID vaccines now coming back to other vaccines and especially HPV vaccines. So I do just want to emphasize that we are seeing with the HPV vaccine just incredible, incredible efficacy among people who get it. So initially, you know, when the vaccine came out because of the nature of the cancers it prevents, so it prevents cervical cancer as well as many other cancers, including head and neck cancer. So when it came out, it was hard to get those cancer endpoints, right? Because we usually cervical cancer, which is the main one that we've been looking at and following since the beginning, uh, it usually, not always, but usually takes decades from the time you get infected with HPV to the time when you develop uh, cervical cancer. And so we, you know, initially when the vaccine came out, there weren't cancer endpoints for that. There was infections. We knew HPV almost always caused, like almost all cervical cancers were caused by HPV. And we had endpoints of of precancerous lesions. We had those, but the anti-vaxxers are always like, well, you don't have, you can't prove to me that it prevents cancer, even though one in one equals two. And we all knew that it prevented cervical cancer. Well, we have a lot of studies now that actually look at cancer as an endpoint. I want to highlight one that was, this is 2021, but it was in the Lancet and it was an observational study in England. 
And when they looked at it by age, when they looked at the risk reductions for cancer, depending on age groups, they found the younger you got, basically when you got to that age group that would have been almost entirely immunized, or at least the the highest amount of those people would have been immunized before contracting HPV, you found that just incredible reduction here in cervical cancer to the point that they said, I'm going to read the interpretation. We observed a substantial reduction in cervical cancer and incidence of CIN3, which is one of those precancerous lesions in young women after the introduction of the HPV immunization program in England, especially in individuals who were offered the vaccine at age 12 to 13 years. And then this is the beautiful sentence. The HPV immunization program has successfully almost eliminated cervical cancer in women born since September 1st, 1995. Like it has been a huge impact. So amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, so good. Mm-hmm. So <sighs> I just can't stress enough uh, the importance of this vaccine. I often say, you know, when you kind of look at just by the numbers, this is possibly our one of our most life-saving vaccines that's ever been made. And one of the safest. And one of the safest because we have so many studies. This kind of came out. It wasn't like other vaccines where uh, you were doing a new vaccine, a new version of an older vaccine, you know, MMR instead of individual vaccines, whatever. It was a new vaccine that they knew was going to get a lot of scrutiny. We have seen so many studies trying to run down about any safety concern that's popped up. There's been so many and none of them have found that there's a significant safety concern with the HPV vaccine. I mean, if if every vaccine we had were this effective mm-hmm. and this safe, I mean, it, you know, if we could get a flu vaccine that did this, yes. you know what I mean? <laughs> yep. People will happily go get their flu shot every year, but then they'll be like, mm, HPV. Yep. Yeah. You. I mean, the, the kicker is it always requires a little bit of foresight. You have to recognize that you're preventing something down the road. And mm-hmm. there's obviously a lot that has to do with stigma and whatnot of sexual behavior. But just by the numbers, there's really no reason to not make sure that everyone who's eligible for this vaccine gets this Mm -hmm. vaccine. But Nathan, I've been getting flu shots for 30 years now Mm -hmm. and I've never gotten the flu. So what's the point in getting the flu shot? Yeah. That that you're almost there. You've come this close to figuring it out. (laughs) I'm just saying like, I don't know if the flu is even real. Missed it by that much. (laughs) See, See how many of our listeners get that reference. We'll see. They can they can write us and let us know. Yeah, this is fantastic. I always love talking about HPV vaccines. Really, just I, I've I've um, had a number of friends over the years who have had precancerous lesions or abnormal Pap smears, mm-hmm. and even at that level, even at that level, it oh, is sure. painful, invasive, horrible, anxiety-producing. You know, if if that's all you could prevent in your daughter. Wouldn't you do that? Like, if oh, that's sure. all she were going to get, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the head and neck cancers, the penile cancer, the anal cancer. The um, genital warts. The genital warts, the the vulva cancer, which I've seen photos of and almost mm-hmm. fainted. Just really, um, it's uh, it's always worth preventing. So thank you always for bringing that up. Yeah. My around the web is similar because it's again mm-hmm. one of those like what's old is new again, uh, yeah. but it's from a new source. So we have a Mr. Uh, Steve Kirsch. Oh, okay, yeah, 
this guy <laughs> this guy oh my gosh he renewed my interest in twitter over the last week because i'm Hot just new like... anti-vax personality on the scene <laughs> so his background just so everybody knows he does have i believe a phd in electrical engineering and computer science mm -hmm. so obviously he knows all about epidemiology and he recently discovered the vaccines and autism myth. Mm -hmm. And so for whatever reason, he has put David Gorski in his sights. Okay. Yeah. And he's he's offered offered David five million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> you have to say that with your pinky in your mouth. <laughs> five million dollars. There we go. Um if he can prove that vaccines don't cause autism. I mean, he also offered at one point like $10,000, like he wants to debate David. And it's just like, it's so sad because he keeps saying these things and it's like, oh my gosh. It's like he, his favorite thing is bringing up the whole William Thompson thing. Mm -hmm. So for mm -hmm. folks who are new to us, the William Thompson thing was the, in scare quotes, CDC whistleblower uh, event, which is this man who worked on a study with Frank Stefano in the early aughts. And it was a good study. It basically showed that um, when you controlled for all sorts of confounding factors that vaccines don't cause autism. But uh, uh, Brian Hooker, who is a biochemist, decided he wanted to rerun the numbers. So he took these numbers, and I'm going to get it backwards. Like, I think they did a, co a cohort study, and he did a case control study, or I might be getting that backwards. Yeah, he, he ran the wrong, I'm not an epidemiologist. He ran the wrong, numbers wrong because he's also not an epidemiologist. And he came up with that um, African-American boys um, under the age of three were more likely to be diagnosed with autism if they were vaccinated. One of the confounders that DiStefano and crew had adjusted for was that some of these kiddos were put into special ed programs and were right. under immunized and had to get caught up. Yeah, and so at that age, they were more likely to be immunized, and so um, you know he didn't look at that. It, it's a terrible study. It's what Andrew Wakefield's movie Vaxed was based on. <laughs> it was the thing that launched Dell Big Tree, and Steve Kirsch has just discovered it, and he oh my gosh, just. Yeah. He's in love. He just like he was like I thought COVID was great. Now I've got all of this like vaccines and autism stuff. He's in heaven and he really feels like his ticket to paradise is, you know, pestering David Gorski. <laughs> nauseum about something that it's, David Gorski had like It's so interesting because I remember when we went when this was going on I mean, we've been doing this long enough. We remember this 10, what, 10 years ago? It was like 2014, 20 something like that. I think it was, it was like, like, I think it was 2015. Yeah. Like almost a decade as we watched it happen in real time and Vax comes out and I watched Vax at the time mm -hmm. and the Posey documents all revealed all the things and they were convinced. And Thompson said that they, that he thought that they had a big trash can and stuff was thrown. Like there's just all this <laughs> stuff. It doesn't really make a lot of sense when you kind of break it down and be like, okay, mm -hmm. wait, is this really how any of this works? You know, there's some criticism of like 
did did the early drafts did they intend to include this kind of subgroup analysis did they not were they intending all along to control by using the birth certificate? You know, they they adjusted for could we confirm all this data with birth certificates that we could find, and then that association didn't show up in the birth certificates in the original CCs. It's a, it's a mess, and I'm probably doing a bad job of describing it all. But the thing is, like, it's so weird to see this come back up as if this is new stuff that we haven't already gone through in great detail. Like, right. I know all about this thing and i've read all of the transcripts and all of the posy documents and all the stuff like we know it doesn't add up but the interesting thing to watch and it's not just true about steve but like some of these uh anti-vaxxers is there's a point at which they don't understand the issues the problems with their logic enough that you can't explain it to them mm -hmm. like if i can't explain to you why a twitter poll <laughs> is not okay you're trying to get me to to, to tell you that your math is wrong with how you calculate statistical significance, but you don't understand that a Twitter poll right. doesn't matter. Right. You're like, <laughs> I, you're, can't, your survey? I can't do anything more with that. <laughs> I know. Your survey that you sent out publicly and people get to yeah. self-select whether or not they yeah. take it, that data is meaningless. And so, yeah, if you're going to challenge somebody and give them money, you think that any of us are going to take our time with somebody who doesn't like you wouldn't even know what a right answer is to give the money like you wouldn't know <laughs> there's a basic level here that we're not on the same page as but whatever. well and gorski's already done this so oh, if, yeah. if anyone knows steve kirsch and wants to ask him just to listen to this section of the podcast i mean i don't expect him to but steve if you're listening I recommend that before you say just any more words, that you actually go back and read everything that everyone wrote in 2015. Assume that maybe people know a little bit about what they're talking about, even though they're not electrical engineers, and take some time to just noodle on that and think like, if, if this is what they're saying and maybe they're right, maybe I don't know something and just have a little humility about that, let it settle in and then decide whether or not you're going to offer $5 million for who knows what. But yeah, I just, and, and, and before Steve like stumbles on to the next thing, like I, I don't even know what, like is, is the next thing, is he going to decide that it's like the mercury in the vaccines? We could just keep going backwards. It could, it could be the, the, the DPT. DPT. Yeah, yeah. DPT. Right. Is he going to, oh no, you know what, he's going to, yeah, he's going to decide that um, vaccines turn us into cows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There we go. Putting the herd in herd immunity. That's right. <laughs> because of the cows. Alrighty. Before we move on to our interview with Jonathan, I just want to mention that Voices for Vaccines has a request for all of our listeners. And you, you know, you're not a listener, Nathan, but you know. I'm listening. But you're listening to me now. We are trying to raise $10,000 in the month of June. As everybody knows, uh, funding priorities are changing throughout the country, which means that public health is all getting less money. And so Voices for Vaccines is going to rely a little bit more on individual donors in the upcoming year. And so if you go to voicesforvaccines.org slash donate, if you want to give us $5 a month, that makes a huge difference to us and really tells us that we can rely on some funding that is going to be coming through for the year. So please do that. And then on the other side of this break, we're going to listen to our interview with Jonathan Howard. 
And I am joined now by Dr. Jonathan Howard. Jonathan is a neurologist at New York University and somewhat of uh, an anti-vaccine combatter online. Did I get that right, Jonathan? I think so. Um, I've been doing this probably not quite as long as you, but yeah, no, I've, I've been uh, studying and, and combating uh, anti-vaccine misinformation since probably 2010 or so in one form or another. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes quietly, sometimes loudly. Um, uh, but, I've, but I've been doing this for a while. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And I want to start actually with your background a little bit, because I think it's interesting that you're a neurologist. And, you know, there's other folks in the medical field who aren't infectious disease docs or pediatricians who also get brought into this landscape of, you know, fighting vaccine misinformation. The most prominent one I can think of is Dr. Gorski, who is a surgical oncologist, of course, but you're a neurologist. So what is the, can you take us on the journey from neurology to uh, fighting misinformation? Sure. So um, actually, I'm both a neurologist and a psychiatrist. I did a double boarded residency here at NYU in Bellevue, which is actually mostly my home base. But one of the doctors who I trained with, a name I know that you'll know, Dr. Kelly Brogan, as soon as she graduated here, morphed into one of the country's most outspoken anti-vaccine doctors. And I trained with her. We spent four years together, you know, in various ways. Uh, And we were friendly. There's no personal animosity there. But after she left here, she started posting all of these anti-vaccine messages on, on, on Facebook. And I became very confused because how could this very smart person, uh, she went to MIT, she went to Cornell, she trained here with me at NYU, come to believe these very strange things. And the very first time I I encountered uh, some of her anti-vaccine posts, I I couldn't refute them. I didn't know exactly what she had gotten wrong. And it was thanks to organizations like yours and Dr. Gorsi, who you mentioned, that I learned about all these anti-vaccine myths. And I, and I think it's actually very connected because being both a neurologist and a psychiatrist, I'm very interested in how people think and why they develop the beliefs that they do. So I just became very fascinated with how a smart person like Kelly Brogan could come to believe not just that vaccines cause all sorts of nonsense, but that germs don't even, you know, viruses don't even cause illness. She's a germ theory denier. So I'm not really sure I know why smart people <laughs> believe weird things. I don't know if I'm ever closer uh, closer to answering my uh, my decade-old question, but I've, I've studied the anti-vaccine movement. I know how to refute and spot all of their arguments at this point. I feel like you're the little guy in Kung Fu Panda. And like, when you get that answer, then you'll be like, now I can die. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, I think some people, once the sort of conspiracy theory bug bites them, you know, they'll start to believe any 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 sort of uh, conspiracy theory. I, I think, and this is something that, that, that I discuss, is, is this idea that there are just certain people who want to be different, who want to be contrarian. So let's say vaccines were banned. I, I think this group of people would then describe them correctly as a suppressed miracle cure, because after all, doctors make more money treating diseases than preventing them. So I, I really think that there's a lot of just contrarianism in there. And I've always been fascinated by anti-vaccine doctors like Dr. Brogan in particular. You know, there, there aren't many, but the ones that are are, are, are very famous. They, they use their credentials. They can speak in scientific jargon and they confuse a lot of people and can do a lot of damage. No, I, I obviously I really agree with you. And that really brings us to your latest 
project, which is a book. We want them infected. So can you tell me, give me a little bit of background about, I'm, I'm asking for all this background, a little bit more background about where the idea of this book came from. What was, what's the origin story? So about two years ago in May of 2021, I started writing for the blog Science Based Medicine. And I started doing kind of what I've been doing for the past decade, which is really hoping to expose some of the myths of anti-vaccine doctors. That's kind of what I've always done. What was surprising, though, is the doctors who I was discussing, who I discussed in this book. So doctors like Kelly Brogan, who were anti-vaccine before the pandemic, of course, became virulently anti-vaccine during the pandemic. But people like her, they weren't super duper influential. They got kicked off of Facebook. They weren't interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, CNN. They didn't write editorials in the Atlantic and the Washington Post. But a sort of another group of doctors rose to take her place. And, and that really caught me off guard because these are very famous names, some of them, as famous as a sort of scientist can be. But they uh, have credentials currently at top-notch universities, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, University of California, San Francisco, Johns Hopkins, one here where I work at NYU. And they were all over the place in the media this pandemic. Very few of them treated COVID patients like Dr. Brogan. But I saw them echoing her pre-pandemic talking points. For example, in 2014, she wrote an article titled, essentially, HPV vaccine makers study proves that HPV vac uh, infection uh, beneficial. So essentially, it was this idea that the best way to gain immunity to a virus was to get that virus which is makes sense makes makes as much sense as shaving my head to prevent my, uh, me from going bald anymore. I mean, I guess it works, but it's kind of defeats the purpose. But that idea became mainstream during the pandemic, which is where the title of the book comes from. We want them infected. That was a quote from Dr. Paul Alexander, uh, an epidemiologist who worked for the Trump administration. And it's to be taken very literally. While people like myself were working at Bellevue treating COVID patients, trying to suppress the spread of the virus, there was a group of other doctors sheltered from the consequences of their word who were literally trying to spread the virus to young, unvaccinated people in the hopes that spreading the virus would get rid of the virus. A Kelly Brogan-esque idea. And that was shocking to me. It is shocking. And I'm glad you brought up Paul Alexander because I know that, you know, he figures uh, prominently at the beginning of your book. But also he had the ear of people in decision-making power. And, you know, in your view, how much of a difference did that make in the promulgation of these really ill-begotten concepts? I mean, so I think all of these guys were very influential. As I said, they had large megaphones in the media. They have very large social media accounts. They directly influenced Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Glenn Youngkin. And even after vaccines became available, they continued to encourage unvaccinated young people from getting uh, getting the vaccine. And we both know that pediatric COVID vaccination rates are, are, are very low. Uh, you know, if this was 2019 and, you know, parents weren't vaccinating themselves against the, you know, against measles, polio or HPV, there'd be a national outcry. But in 2020, not only is there not a national outcry, people like myself get scolded for, for, for advocating for pediatric vaccines and criticizing anti-vaccine doctors. We're, we're told we need to debate and discuss these ideas. 
and just blatantly false information. So I'm not talking about, you know, maybe a, a, a nuanced thing, you know, should a child who had two vaccine doses and at least one, uh, you know, Omicron infection, would that per, would that child benefit from a booster? I, I don't know. I'm not going to call that person anti-vaccine uh, if they say no, but, but, but doctors use fake stats, fake information to discourage parents from vaccinating their children against COVID. I'll just give one example of what do I mean by sort of a fake number. So one of the country's leading anti-vaccine doctors, and I do have no trouble describing them that way, an oncologist at the University of California, San Francisco, Dr. Vinay Prasad, who mocked vaccine advocates before the pandemic, you know, published this article in October 2022, saying that if COVID vaccines for children are made routine, it will discourage parents from vaccinating their children against more dangerous disease like polio or measles. So there's a few things that are wrong with this. Number one, all three viruses are dangerous for children, polio, measles, and and COVID, of course. The vaccines are not in some sort of competition with each other, a no-holds-barred competition with a winner-take-all. But COVID is more dangerous for children at this moment than polio. Uh, COVID has killed about 2,000 children over the course of the pandemic. It's hospitalized around 200,000 more. In contrast, I don't think a single child has been infected with polio in the United States in my entire life. So here is a, a prominent professor from UCSF saying the virus that killed, that infected zero children is more dangerous than the one that infected nearly every child in the United States and killed 2,000 of them. And the former dean of Harvard said, oh, we need to discuss these ideas. We need to debate them. But I guarantee if I had said to someone in 2019, virus A killed 2,000 children, virus B killed zero, which is more dangerous, the answer is pretty obvious. And anyone who said zero would be thought of as a quack. But now that's mainstream. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is a really excellent point. You know, it does beg the question, though. So if we go back to a time before there were vaccines, there were a significant number of people who didn't believe a vaccine would be possible. Usually people working outside of the vaccine space, right? People with no knowledge in it whatsoever. Didn't seem possible that we could get a vaccine anytime soon. My own brother said to me, they've never successfully made a vaccine against coronavirus. And I yelled at him a lot. It's fine. Was there any legitimacy to the idea of let's, let's just get all the young people infected at that point? I don't think so. It's easy to just sort of say, looking back, because we did get a vaccine. <laughs> you know, I suppose in a world without vaccines, you know, our, our, but that's sort of an imaginary kind of fantasy world. It may have made some sort of sense. So, for example, my mother, probably like many parents, you know, did purposefully expose me to chickenpox when I was a child because she correctly knows that chickenpox is milder in children than it is in adults. It's better to get it when you're five, not 50. And I don't view her as some sort of, uh, you know, anti-vaccine quack. But parents have the option today. So even if that plan made sense the first year of the pandemic, the moment vaccines arrived, it became irrelevant. And um, but that so, so, so people had to choose then between their allegiance to their ideas that they formed in the pandemic's first months when all of them thought COVID was going to kill 40 to 50,000 Americans or allegiance to the science, allegiance to the idea that there's this vaccine that can prevent very rare but very grave harms in some children. And they chose allegiance to their ideas. Uh, which is which with unfortunate consequences for for uh, some children and some young adults. 
one thing that I really try to do in the book is stress that there were real world consequences for all of this misinformation. For example, many doctors, I just got done saying, uh, you know, certain doctors said polio was worse than, than COVID for children. Uh, many doctors said the same thing about the flu. And I quote from parents whose children suffered quite a bit from COVID who were intubated for two weeks, who said, I, I thought it was just the flu. Now I know better. And I will say from our personal experience in my family with COVID, my husband had flu in 2013. First time in his life he'd ever had the flu. And he, when he recovered, he said, I legitimately thought I was going to die. It was so awful. And then we got vaccinated. We had all our vaccines. And after we had all our vaccines, you know, probably about six months later, my whole family got COVID. And I asked him, you know, <laughs> for my job, I asked him which one was worse, COVID or the flu? And he said the flu, definitely. And so like there is that protective thing that the, the COVID vaccine does, even if you get COVID, it can so blunt the effects of COVID, you know, and that's, and yeah, so he's, I mean, he's a believer in vaccines anyhow, otherwise we wouldn't be married, right? And um, you, you know what, just one other thing about those, the early pandemic sort of pronouncements, a lot of these people, believe that one infection would lead to permanent immunity, uh, which was kind of always an article of faith with a brand new virus. But they treated the virus starting in March 2020 as this very predictable known entity. They treated it like measles or polio, a virus that we've been uh, combating since, uh, you know, as long as uh, antiquity, as long as there are human records. And, and they turned it into almost cheerleaders for the virus. Uh, writing articles called the triumph of natural immunity or, you know, tweeting natural immunity wins again. And, and you and I both know that the phrase natural immunity is a very loaded phrase. I mean, it's not entirely inaccurate, although the, the immunity induced by vaccines is totally natural. But, but you and I both know that's a very loaded phrase and it's like catnip to anti-vaxxers. And I think that a lot of other doctors who didn't share my sort of weird, quirky obsession with the anti-vaccine movement kind of missed these cues or, oh, sure, natural immunity is great. Fine. You know, um, but, but you and I could read between the lines or hear these dog whistles and, and really see what these doctors were doing, which they, they themselves might not have appreciated, to be totally honest with you. You know, and I actually, that triggers a question in my mind because, you know, we've been steeped in this for a decade plus. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who came onto the scene because of COVID to either encourage vaccination or to fight misinformation, all these things, maybe hadn't been doing this already with HPV or MMR. Those folks may have missed those sort of dog whistles early on. And I'm wondering if you think that if they had been paying attention to us earlier on, if, if it would have made any difference. It's hard to say. I mean, Francis Collins, who I think was the former director of the NIH, sort of uh, recognizing, you know, how much he had underestimated how big a problem misinformation was going to be. But as I say in the book, so did I. Uh, I. I knew two things. I knew there was going to be a deluge of misinformation about the COVID vaccines. And in fact, I was right about this. That's a very easy prediction to make. And the anti-vaccine movement was gearing up to fight COVID vaccines Again, at the very beginning of the pandemic, March, even February 2020, uh, they were gearing up to fight it. What I didn't anticipate is how big it would become, that it would become entirely political, that certain states and, you know, if not the entire Republican Party, not the entire, but, you know, certain segments of it are, are, are 
became a became becoming anti-vaccine became a core value. You know, I kind of thought that once people saw their neighbors, you know, going to the morgue, you know, they would rethink some of these beliefs. And I was kind of wrong about that. You know, these beliefs spread and disseminated and became a march marker of uh, identity, unfortunately, for certain people. The other thing that I didn't anticipate, as I think I've already hinted at, is who would become anti-vaccine. Again, that all of these sort of prominent names from respected universities would become anti-vaccine. And in the same way that anti-vaxxers were gearing up to fight the COVID vaccine in March and April 2020, the campaign against the pediatric COVID vaccine began months before any child was vaccinated. But again, this was doctors at UCSF and Johns Hopkins discouraging pediatric vaccination before a single child had been vaccinated. Certain doctors thought two years ago in in the spring of 2021 that COVID was on its way out. And this was a very optimistic time. uh, So I want to, you know, cut them some slack here. And they thought children didn't need COVID vaccines for that reason. They thought it was just kind of going to peter out with adult vaccination. So that was their reason two years ago for not vaccinating children. Fast forward to today, they use the exact opposite argument. They say children don't need the COVID vaccine because they've all already had COVID. So whether COVID cases were going down or COVID cases were going up, that was used as evidence that kids didn't need the vaccine. So that was the primary belief and all facts on the ground supported that. And that's called confirmation bias. The other thing I'm hoping you'll talk about, there was the Great Barrington Declaration, which I know you cover at length in the book, and the idea that we could just infect young people, or, you know, infecting young people wasn't a bit that big of a deal. But there are obviously problems with that if you're a person who's not a young person. <laughs> and that, of course, is that we all actually live together in society. We don't live segmented by age. Uh, so, you know, how did people, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration is amazing to me because it's all these doctors who, like you said, should have known better. How did they get swept up in that? Was it some sort of mass delusion? Get, put on your psychiatrist hat. <laughs> tell us tell us what that was all about. Yeah, so so what, what would follow, the, the answer to that question is just kind of speculation. And I, I, I don't do a ton of that in the book, try to ascribe motives to people. I really just try to let their words speak for themselves. I will talk about the Great Barrington Declaration, and I will try to answer your your question. So probably not too many people don't know what it is. But in brief, it was a document signed on October 4th, 2020, two months before vaccines started coming out. And it was signed, it was written by three epidemiologists, I'll say, uh, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. Oh, I think he's more of a health economist. Uh, Sunita Gupta from Oxford and Martin Kuldorf, who at the time was associated with Harvard. And all three of these doctors really, really underestimated COVID at the beginning. Sunita Gupta was predicting herd immunity for the UK, I think, in, in the spring of 2020. Jay Bhattacharya wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal called, Is the Coronavirus as Deadly as They Say? He said it was not. He predicted that it would cause between 20 and 40,000 deaths. And Martin Kuldorf was predicting Sweden was going to have herd immunity in April 2020. So all three of them really underestimated the uh, harms of the virus, and they really feared lockdowns. And I don't blame them. We always have to think about the worst case scenario. And I frequently get accused online of saying lockdowns had no consequences. No, lockdowns were horrible. People's businesses suffered. 
their their social networks were severed in, in, in a heartbeat. Schools were closed. Church, you know, it was awful. Uh, you know, people who had planned wedding, you know, it, it was terrible. It was a brutal solution to a brutal problem. And I just want to point out that I was spared uh, most of the harms of lockdowns. I never missed a paycheck. Uh, I was never lonely because I worked throughout the pandemic. You know, my kids had remote schooling, which affected them quite a bit. So I wasn't totally spared. Anyways, that was their starting point. And they got together, as I said, on October 4th, 2020, and came up with this great Barrington Declaration, which its origins were a little sort of shady. It was sponsored by this man, Jeffrey Tucker, who sounds like a sort of cartoonish villain. Before the pandemic, he had written for a racist organization called like the Sons of the Confederacy, at least according to a report from the Southern Poverty Law Center. In 2016, he wrote an overtly pro-child labor article called Let the Kids Work, which suggested that kids should drop out of school and work for Chick-fil-A and Walmart. And he was also pro-child smoking. He said uh, that children should smoke when they're teenagers because it's cool and they can quit before it causes any damage. He didn't think cigarettes were addicting. And there were journalists there. Oh my gosh. There I'm were... sorry. I have to stop you. This guy, I didn't know that about him. How did I miss that? Yeah. No, he's like a cartoon villain. He's, and, he's, and like, now... he's like he read Jonathan Swift and took it seriously. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Let's Let's eat our children. And, and now he claims to be very concerned about, you know, closed schools, you know, so it's all sort of a farce. It's all sort of an act. But anyways, you know, at, at the Great Barrington Declaration, as I said, there were journalists, there were cameras. So this whole thing was a highly choreographed affair. It was a spectacle, right? I've never, I've been to dozens of meetings with doc, you know, my fellow doctors in my life. We've never had journalists and cameras there, there filming us. And the very next day, they were at the White House meeting with Secretary Alex Azar. They had already met with President Trump. So it was a very sort of political document. It's very short. You can read it in 10 minutes. So if, if anyone's listening to this podcast, you know, pause it, read it, and, and come right back. We'll see you, you know, very soon. Um, it was based on the idea, uh, which is true, that COVID is much more dangerous for older people and people with medical conditions. And it's not dangerous for healthy young children, although, you know, several hundred healthy young children have probably died of COVID. And their idea was to have zero COVID for some people, the, 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 not the vulnerable people, and pure COVID for everyone else. They thought that a wall, two things, they thought that people could be easily identified as vulnerable or not vulnerable. They only recognize death as a bad outcome. The idea that someone could be injured by COVID but not die of it never factored into their calculations. They thought one infection meant permanent immunity. They thought that children could not spread the virus. And they thought that vulnerable and not vulnerable people could be walled off from each other for many months in a row. And they predicted, it's still up there on their website, they said herd immunity would arrive in three to six months. And so half of it, of the Great Barrington Declaration, this was the part that people took seriously, was this idea to open everything up. And the other half was called focus protection, which is protecting the vulnerable. And they, they didn't really have a plan. For example, their whole plan to protect elderly people living at home was like four sentences long. Um, and it was things like, during times of high transmission, public health officials should deliver groceries to, to people's houses. And that was their plan. That's a lot harder to do in real life than to write in a declaration. So they made very, very 
probably impossible things sound very, very easy. I kind of liken it to a football coach whose plan is score more points than the other team. It's not the wrong plan. It's, you know, it's, in fact, it's the exact right plan, but it's not going to work. And the fact that it was an impossible plan, and again, I put that in quotes because it was really just a list of demands. Feed seniors at home, you know, give them hotels when they, when they need it. Um, but the fact that it was impossible always allowed them to say, no one is listening to us. No one is listening to us, uh, which was very useful to them. And the plan became obsolete once vaccines arrived. You know, they, they could easily have said, okay, this was a reasonable plan for dealing with COVID had there been no vaccines. But once vaccines arrived, they became virulently anti-vaccine for children using absurd logic, such as the fact that more that, that COVID is a thousand times more dangerous for old people. Okay, that's fine. But that's not a good reason to let some children suffer and die. I think, and I think you'll agree with me, that zero children should suffer or die for lack of a vaccine. And they have a different answer. And that was not normal in 2019. No, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, I want to use a part of your brain that knows about neurology because I have had questions that I don't think can be answered yet, but I, I kind of want to get your sense of something. I don't want predictions or answers because I don't think they're there yet. But, you know, when they talk about this criticism of the lockdown that kids were left out of school, and I will say, I actually wanted kids back in school and bars closed. I was always like, close the bars, put the kids in school. Like opening the schools first should be our first priority, not the bars, not the workplaces. Like let's think of the kids first, but that's me. You know, especially once we had face masks that kids could wear at school. So, you know, they they, they didn't like the educational effects that were gonna happen because of the lockdowns, which I, I completely understand as someone who was once a teacher herself. Um, they also, you know, um, worry about the effects of the vaccine on kids you know there's always there, there's always the theories about the blood brain barrier which we know is nonsense i mean i feel like in our newsletter about once a month we cover like spike proteins in your brain you know from vaccines which is total nonsense we've covered it in like 18 different possible ways thanks to you know our program coordinator beth drummond who somehow doesn't get tired of me being like now we're going to cover this again but the thing that they miss that i have been wondering about since the very beginning of covid is what sort of neurological effects does the virus have on a young developing brain so you know what are the unknown things we're going to see in five years when kids who were born to infected mothers start entering kindergarten? What are we going to see when the kids who were, you know, preschoolers and had to go to daycare so that their parents could work and then they got infected? What are we going to start seeing as they get into, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade when they're expected to be able to read at grade level? Um, you know, are we going to see increases in things like ADHD? And I, I know this is a very big question, but is there reason to be concerned about the neurological effects of young children getting COVID? I, I think so. Uh, but before I answer that question, let me just make one point about school closures, which is that the virus also closed schools. It wasn't always no, you're just right. cautious politicians and teachers unions. So you can look at articles, especially from the Delta wave and the Omicron wave from Georgia, from Texas, from Florida, 
from Kentucky, you know, not from democratic states, although I guess Kentucky has a democratic governor, but anyways, you know, wasn't just overly cautious politicians. And even when schools were open, sometimes there were too many sick teachers to teach. I know at least a couple of days here in New York City, my kids just sat in the auditorium all day and did nothing. Other times people had to bring in the National Guard to, to teach students. And the Great Barrington Declaration and, and, and the doctors that I write about it, they reacted to this by pretending it never happened. So you will yes. never find them even acknowledging that the virus also closed schools. And this yeah. also happened in vaunted Sweden. So Sweden yeah. never shut down its elementary schools as a, as a, as a country. But hundreds, I don't know about hundreds, but uh, one article that I wrote for science-based medicine is about 50 screenshots that uh, someone compiled of uh, just school closures in Sweden. So it really yeah. was uh, just cautious politicians. Now, no, you're true. I, I'll just to to sort of put that in context. I had um, one kid in a Catholic school and one kid in a public school, and the kid in the public school, the pandemic started his junior year and ended his senior year of high school. So those are you know sort of big years. And he didn't get back to school until April of his senior year. So he had more than a year off of school because actually two weeks before any lockdown started, his teachers all went on strike, which I completely support, by the way. They were on strike for good reasons. But the public school was unable to gather the resources to reopen schools, right? Like they didn't have the ventilation. They didn't have the masks. They didn't have the number of teachers. They couldn't get the class sizes small enough. The little Catholic school could sequester off every single classroom so that they never saw more than 20 people at school a, a day. You know, they ate lunch in the classroom. They had like little plexiglass between students. Like they could do all these things because of how, how small they were. And I think that I completely agree with you that the virus closed down schools. Um, all schools had to be closed at least for some amount of time, but we also never ever put the resources into helping schools reopen. That we didn't put the money into hiring more teachers so that class sizes could be smaller. You know, putting more safety precautions in, making sure all kids were masked, like making sure that they weren't going through the hallway more times than they needed to. So. That's that's sort of the context I'm thinking about that. I don't know why I went on that diversion, but it's just, it well, was part of like, when we lack the will to protect children, part of it is that lockdowns lasted longer than they should have because, you know, but the, we did need lockdowns, I agree with you. But the other part is that we don't fight to get our kids vaccinated or we, you know, the that we roll out a vaccine for children and we don't, fight for the need for this vaccine. We just sort of say, hey, here's a vaccine. Yeah. So all the doctors that I write about to varying degrees were against masks. They were against testing. They were against vaccines. They were against all measures that could have actually helped open schools. So I refuse to cede the school closing ground to these doctors. They were very pro saying the words open schools. They wanted their reputation as people who wanted schools open. Whether schools actually opened, I don't think really concerned them. And I'll also say that teachers were vulnerable. Here in New York City, during the first six weeks of the pandemic, we lost 74 Department of Education employees. Uh, 70 of them worked in schools, 30 of them were teachers, and the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration dealt with this by saying most teachers are young, you know, they, they can handle COVID just fine. 
and the idea that maybe they lived with their elderly mother or anything like this, you know, never really sort of seemed to occur to them. So would teachers have returned to school in mass, you know, had schools been open? Would parents have sent their children to school, especially here in New York City, where we have a lot of multi-generational homes who were stacked up on each other? Those didn't really, whether children were actually in school learning mattered less than they cemented their reputations uh, is people who went on the media and said schools should be open. So they were looking out, I think, for themselves and their reputations, not whether children were actually in school learning. To get back to your original question about, you know, the the, the potential neurological complications, I, I, I don't know. My attitude for this is we just have to be humble. I mean, there are some worrying signs, you know, that at least children who get very sick from COVID, uh, about 1% of hospitalized children uh, emerge having seizures. We have to be humble about the consequences of, of repeat infections. You know, a kid who's born today might inquire COVID 20 times by the time, you know, they, they, they go to college. Who knows? Probably not that many, but I, I, I am very careful. I hope not to come across as a, as a fear monger. I mean, there are and, and there were certain doctors on social media who who panicked about every variant, you know, a red flag, giant alert, you know, or if there was a case report of, you know, one person who got COVID and then, you know, had the brain eating amoeba. I don't know, you know, that that COVID causes the brain eating amoeba. So I, 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 I don't defend that sort of fear mongering. I just try to take a conservative approach to things and say, hey, we have to be cautious about the potential for consequences that we can't appreciate now, especially in unvaccinated children. So I, I don't want to fear monger about things. Um, you know, do I think masses of children will develop, uh, you know, Alzheimer's disease at age 20? You know, pro probably not. Uh, but we just have to be careful and cautious because there's a precedent for many other viruses to do this, as we, as we know. That's very true that, you know, viruses affect children's development in negative ways. We know measles, for example, can knock out a kid's immune system for a few yep. years. And that was only um, discovered in 2019. Right. Yeah, exactly. And we've had measles for hundreds of years. So, you know, this ever evolving coronavirus that, that we've got circulating still, you, who knows what we're going to discover about it? Yeah. And I, I really like your humble approach about that, too. Thank you. Yeah, the, the, the book, you know, it's not, I, I don't claim to be a guru. I don't say here's exactly what we should have done or what we should do moving forward, either on a society level or an individual level. You know, there are many people who are take more risks than me. There are many people who take less risks than me. You know, and I, I don't try to shame anyone with this. It's just about to be, the whole book is about essentially all I say is vaccinate everyone, but but be honest about things, right? So let's say we had never closed schools. You know, what would have happened? Well, we don't know for sure, but tens of millions of children would have contracted COVID uh, in the spring of 2020. They would have passed it on to some of their older relatives, and we know how exponential growth works. The fact that we didn't let that happen now lets people sort of say, oh, everything would have been just fine if we had done that. And I think that's a that's sort of a fantasy, which is actually one of the main themes of the book is I sort of toggle back and forth between this fantasy world where, you know, we have herd immunity to COVID. It only affects 80 year olds with end stage cancer. And then the reality is, yeah, we, we don't have, you know, we didn't have herd immunity to COVID two years ago. And, you know, some healthy young people can be severely affected by the disease. 
And I do think that's one advantage that I have over these doctors is I saw it with my own eyes. So, you know, I did see some young people and a few without underlying medical conditions become very sick and a couple die with COVID, not many, but it was enough to make an impression on me and know that young people weren't totally uh, immune from the virus. So I think the fact that I saw this all doesn't make me right, doesn't mean I was able to predict the course of the pandemic better than anyone else, but I hope it gives me a little bit of humility and respect for the virus that I never would have said, you know, in spring 2020, you know, that that we'll all have herd immunity soon. And for most people, this is a complete cold. Um, I never would have mocked variants, uh, calling it Omicold or someone called Omicron nature's vaccine. Uh, and it was just a, just an arrogance towards this brand new virus uh, and, and kind of a, a refusal for people to reconsider their initial pandemic misunderestimation uh, of the virus. Absolutely. Okay, I've got two more, two more questions for you, and these are easy ones. Got it. On May 22nd, 2021, a Twitter account called Songbird predicted that everyone who had been vaccinated would be dead in two years. And so I want to know, did you die? Um, not yet. And if I did, I'm in a, a, a heaven or hell that is exactly like my realities. <laughs> sounds like purgatory to me. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Very good. I, I don't think I died either. Not for lack of trying, but, you know, don't think I did. Second question, where can people get your book? Um, so it's on Amazon. It's on, uh, you can get it directly from the publisher, Red Hawk Publishing. People are asking about a Kindle version. There definitely will be later this summer. That's how I read most of my books. Some people ask about an audio version. I have no idea how any of this works. I suppose if there's enough demand for the written book, there'll be an, there's an audio book. Um, you know, but I'm just one small guy, a doctor in New York who's been writing throughout the pandemic. Um, and put his thoughts into a book. I don't have any sort of major publicity or any publicity agent or, or anything like that. The publishers, God bless them, I love them. They took, they approached this book with great care and speed, which was very important for me, but they're small. They don't have a marketing division. So it's really just going to sort of rely on word of mouth. And, you know, I've gotten uh, a couple very nice reviews uh, about the book recently. And people are, are, I don't want to say they're enjoying it, and it's not a book that's meant to be enjoyed. It's a, it's a book that's meant to be very, very hard to read when you just read 20 pages of doctors saying the pandemic is over, you know, starting three years ago. So it, it's meant to be a, a tough read. But I hope if people read it and like it, they'll, uh, you know, leave a review on Amazon or, you know, tell their friends that it was worth reading. Absolutely. And let me just put a plug, too. If you don't like buying your books online, go to an in independent bookstore and ask them to order it for you. Because that benefits everybody, yeah. <laughs> a small publisher, an independent bookstore, you, Jonathan, the kids who aren't going to get sick with COVID, everyone wins. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jonathan. It was so Thank nice you. talking yeah, you've to been, you. You've been a teacher and an inspiration, and it's a real joy to talk to someone who cared about this stuff before the pandemic, who cared about medical misinformation, who cared about children's health, who cared about vaccines. So I'm really grateful for, for all of your work. And, you know, when I when I say that uh, I was able to refute Kelly Brogan's ideas, it, it's because of people like you uh, who taught me how to do that. So it's an honor to speak to a teacher of mine. And thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we'll be working on this for hopefully decades to come. Actually, hopefully not. Hopefully we're going to solve this in five years and then we're just going to like retire and go to the beach. Sounds good. I look forward to it. 
Thank you to all of you at home for listening in and joining us today. Just go out and buy Jonathan's book and give it a good read. My name is Karen Ernst. I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital and chair of our state immunization coalition, Iowa Immunizes, which you can find at iowaimmunizes.org. All right. Podcast out. To learn more, visit faxtalk.org.